0: Welcome everybody. Today should be a very interesting conversation. Of course, Dr. Kelly Victory joins me just after the uh, opening few minutes of the show. We have attorney Tom Rents in here. He has made some alarming allegations. We're going to get into the depths of it. Uh, He uh, is quoted as having said, remember when you called me a conspiracy theorist because uh, I said they were killing COVID patients. In other words, he is reminding us that what yesterday was a conspiracy theory, theory a year or two later, becomes uh, just simply the facts. Uh, Mr. Renz is an attorney from Ohio. You can follow him at Renz, R-E-N-Z-Law.com. Uh, also, TomRenz.com. And you can subscribe to his Substack at TomRenz.Substack.com. Again, that Renz is R-E-N-Z. And, of course, Twitter is Renz, is the, lamverse, the inverse, Tom, Renz Tom without any space or dots or anything, R-E-N-Z-T-O-M. And hopefully we'll have a chance, I see a lot of you out on Twitter spaces, and of course we're monitoring the restream and the Rumble rants as well, and hopefully I'll have a chance for some calls today, so let's get right to it. Our laws as it pertain to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic, because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake, where the hell you think I learned that? You can spend thousands of dollars trying to look a few years younger, or you can skip all of that hassle and go with what works. Genucel skincare. Care. is the secret to better skin. In fact, you might have witnessed the astonishing effects of Genusel during a recent unplanned moment on our show when just a little Genucel XV restored my skin within minutes right before your eyes. That's how fast these products work.
1: I know I'm a snob about the products I use on my face. Everybody knows it. Every time I go to the dermatologist's office, they're just rows and rows of different creams. And then when I get to the counter, they're overpriced. All kinds of products that you can all find at GenuCell.com.
0: Susan and I love GenuCell so much, we've created our own bundles so you can try our favorite anti-wrinkle treatments, correcting serums, and ultra-retinol creams. Just go to genuselcom slash Drew. Use the code Drew for an extra discount and free priority shipping. Again, that is GenuCell.com slash Drew, G E N U C E L dot com slash D R E W. And we are back. We're have uh, Attorney Tom Ren's in here in just a second. Uh, I'll give Susan a chance to speak to something that just happened to her a few Go minutes ahead. ago as it pertains to Genucel, and thereby it happened to me as well. Go ahead, you. Uh, you, you know, I would like you to say it. Uh, you you well, one that had the experience. You can't, can't hear you. Can't hear you. Oh. Can't. Duh. There you are.
1: I was looking at the ingredients at the dermatologist's office of all Just the products that I ago. used to buy yep. and they were all the same chemicals inside. The so I've realized phenomena. that yeah. you can get your bakuchiol, you can get your vitamin C, you can get your hyaluronic acid, you can get your lactic acid, your you retinols. can get your retinol and it's a fraction of the price. So get my bundle everybody. So, it's so, a good deal.
0: So more importantly, Thank you, cell from me, because she didn't come home with a ridiculous <laughs> no, amount was, of expensive creams that you could get. I was wondering if there was anything the exact else I could same get thing. there
1: that would make my skin look even better than it does, and I couldn't find a thing.
0: Yeah. So and so. So you were saying for the price of a single product, you get the uh, one I, of our bundles.
1: The, yeah, yeah, I can get the whole package.
0: Okay. All right. So there you go.
1: One single thing. All
0: right. Enough. Uh, all right. Let's get right to our show. We're gonna have Dr. Kelly Victory in just a minute. As I said, Thomas Wrens, attorney from Ohio. He has got some interesting things he has uncovered. He has been. Uh, I I think it probably wouldn't be an understatement to say, and I'll I'll ask Tom if this is in fact the case that. He started as a, a moderate, uh, much like myself, and uncovered some things that have been um, alarming, and has uh, caused him to change his position a little bit. Please welcome Tom Renz, Doctor. Good to meet you. Good to meet you as well. Would that be accurate that you started sort of, um, you know, a moderate kind of questioning things, and all of a sudden you've uncovered some things that were alarming?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, that's almost an understatement. Uh, Several years back, going back prior to COVID, I remember one time, and my wife will never let me forget this. uh, She comes into the kitchen. She says, honey, so-and-so, some celebrity from Hollywood, uh, is talking about the connections between vaccines and autism. And I said, Annie, I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life vaccines are great. They do. These are wonderful things. They keep people healthy. They keep them safe. And, uh, and, and, I was, you know, just absolutely astounded by the fact that someone said that. And, uh, you know, fast forward, and I have not done the research on, uh, the autism links. So I, I can't speak to that as well as I can to some of these other things, but yeah, I was 100% pro vaccine. I believed the medical establishment, I believed the science and uh, it wasn't until COVID that I, I shifted positions.
0: Yeah, COVID, uh, you know, I was looking at some emails from 2008, 2011, sort of cleaning up my my Gmail. And oh my goodness, it was like a different world back then. I really felt like oh, I, I have been changed. I have lost something and naive, being naive, maybe the thing I lost. I'm still very pro-vaccine. I still vaccinate with mRNA vaccines my elderly population. I do believe that we're doing... Some good with these things, but the mandates and the over-the-top declarations and the lack of transparency in the literature and in the commercial research—it has left me very, very concerned. So that's sort of where we all, you know, I know you're a little bit further concerned. Kelly's much more concerned, and she and I kind of fight that out all the time. But but at, le- at least we've all sort of at least come to terms with, or at least we've come to understand that there is, um, a, a, a disturbingly cozy relationship between the regulators and the pharmaceutical industry in terms of taking jobs back and forth, A, yeah. uh, and B, that these bureaucratic organizations do are rigid and do not change and tend to take the position that the public can't handle the truth.
2: Yeah, well, you know, so, the thing that was really it kind of prompted me to get into this, right, is back in, in 2020, I was working on a master's in health science. OK, so I'm an amateur mm. scientist. You know, you, you guys, you're, you're the experts. Um, but I was taking my epidemiology and my biostatistics and things like that. And it was around the time that COVID was coming out. And so, you know, I mean, it's a master's in health science. So if there's something in the news, it's worth looking into and uh, so I started looking into it, and what I started seeing was everything that they were saying was misleading. Everything that the media mm-hmm. was saying was not what you were finding if you dug into the hard data. You know, they were overstating mm-hmm. the risk. They were overstating all sorts of things, and and when I looked at it, you know, as a lawyer, when I start seeing asterisks, how many people are dying from this? What's the case fatality rate? What's, you know, what's the reproduction rate? What are all these different things? Well, I started looking at this, well, I kept running into asterisks. This CDC, what do we got here? Asterisk. What do we got? Asterisk. And so, you know, I'm a lawyer. I don't. And you know, I'm my namesake, Doubting Thomas. Right? I doubt everything. And so, being the skeptic, I start looking. That's not enough for me to write something with an asterisk. And as I dug through, well, I kept finding misleading information on misleading information on misleading information. And you can double check my work on this doc. Uh, at the beginning of COVID, in the period of time before tests, any sort of laboratory test was really available, and uh, the time that they were, they were working on what they were going to do to diagnose it, there was a fair amount of time, and I, I wrote this down, and I broke it down by regulation, or by, by guidance, and there was a period of time where if you, if you coughed when you died, and you lived in mm-hmm. an area with continuous ongoing transmission of SARS-CoV-2, you could be called, you could, and it was recommended that you be called a COVID death. And Mm -hmm. that's because they had the epidemiological factor, they had the clinical factor, the cough. And so, I mean, you're a doctor, I'm not, but, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of times when you're dying that you cough. So the miscategorization, you know, to what extent was that happening? And then when you start incentivizing that miscategorization, by passing bills where, where you're paying hospitals for COVID deaths, if they're called COVID deaths, and, and mm-hmm. lifting the guidelines so you can call everything a COVID death, well, what are you gonna get? You're gonna get inflated numbers.
0: Yeah, and in terms of the coughing, let's remind ourselves one the other thing that the press did was under, under explained the risk to the elderly and overemphasized the risk to a young, healthy person. And old people, when they die, cough (laughs) and are short of breath. That's what happens all the time. Uh, So that's kind of interesting. And I saw Vinay Prasad say something a couple days ago where he said, you know, dying, a breast cancer death is similar to a COVID death. You don't really die of the the infection and you don't really die of the cancer you all the epiphenomenon that gets triggered is really kind of what you die of so it gets very complicated did you really die of COVID? Did you die of a super infection or did you die of just heart failure from something else being triggered it's it it, it, i get that it's true and i used to defend the hospitals i i don't know what to do anymore i i because i would say look we have to keep the hospitals open and this is just a convention we're using to make sure they get reimbursed so they can stay open to treat COVID patients. I mean, that was my thinking at the time, like everything the government has done though, they kept doing it way beyond where it was appropriate. And then are not, this is the part that drive me insane, not going back and doing the proper analysis. It, it's fine that you did it the way you did it, but now let's get, let's not consider that data as thus saith the Lord. Let's, let's really try to find a way to figure out really what happened. Oh no, we're not going back. And the same is true of yeah. so many aspects to this, inf- this uh, epidemic.
2: Well, here's the problem. And uh, this is where I distinguish myself from the doctors, right? So I can't go into the science, but in terms of uh, sniffing out the, the, the skunk, if you will, you know, that's part of my job, right? And so one of the things that caught me early on, and for the audience that doesn't know about this, when you get diagnosed with any sort of a disease, you get a diagnostic code. And uh, that, that diagnostic code is supposed to be the same all over the world so that epidemiologists all over the world can study, you know, how, how disease is working, right? When, when COVID came out, they had two codes. They had U071 and U072. U071 was confirmed COVID, U072 was probable COVID. Now, when the United States adopted that convention, they only adopted U 071. So any probable case was considered confirmed COVID in the United States, which drove up our numbers further. And what happened, Doc, is I got to the point where I look at this as a lawyer, not a scientist. A lot of my best scientist friends, you know, they have this this approach and they always look at it through the lens of science where they say, well, listen, you know, we're just trying to get, get to the truth, get to the fact of the matter. And my position as a lawyer is this. Well, what if, what if somewhere along the lines, science is corrupted? What if, they, what if they're lying? Uh, what if it's no longer science but propaganda? And as I started developing more and more evidence on this, when I see things like, why wouldn't you include U071 and U072 as a diagnostic code? Why would you put out a, a, a document? Why would the National Center for Vital Statistics put out a document that said, uh, we want you to call, you know, anything that looks like COVID, COVID. And if you don't, we're going to check on it, why you didn't. And if you do, and it, you know, it's questionable, well, that's okay. It, all of these things led to to what I believe is, is at least a preponderance of the evidence, if not approaching that reasonable doubt level that that this was an intentional process. You know, you don't make these sort of mistakes. The scientists that I know, and the scientists that you and I walk with and talk with, these are, these are guys who don't make huge mistakes. And they certainly don't make epidemiological mistakes that a guy like me could pick out. So, you know, to me, it looked like a yeah. rat and smelled like a rat.
0: Yeah, I, I'm just thinking about when uh, Michelle Walensky came out early and hard. We got to open schools. Fast forward a week, she's going, oh no, no, I was just talking about what I was hoping would happen. I I, I don't know what you're talking mm-hmm. about here. I didn't say anything about schools. That that you you saw these people being adulterated in real time. And these are yeah. scientists. I, I don't know, love to know somebody, where's the journalist? Why aren't they there digging into what exactly happened? Just that, that, just that transaction. What adulterated Rochelle Walensky in that particular issue that that damaged so many children? Where are the journalists? It's disgusting. You know, I'm looking at a page, um, an ICD-9 and, and now an ICD-11 page here, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I've used uo 9 a little bit, and as that, which is sort of post-COVID, right? Yeah. And um, I wonder how much uo 9 was, you know, ended up being uo U071, because uo 9 is very speculative also. And uh, I'm just looking at all the different ways they organize this thing. It's pretty nutty. Uh, They have a U12 finally, which is an adverse reaction to the vaccine. I I wonder who's looking at that data, but uh, I'll tell you what, uh, Tom, I want to bring Kelly in here a little early today. Uh, She has got lots of interesting questions too. I know there's some very, um, dramatic cases that we want to kind of hear about. And, uh, she wants to get into, uh, I'm looking at, uh, if you don't, don't mind, I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking at the rumble rants when they're, where they're saying things like, Hey, we're not in Kansas anymore. In other words, they want to see what Tom, you really are thinking. Uh, and there yeah. are a lot of Tom rents fans in here. So they want to hear the goods and, uh, we will see what, uh, what you have to offer after this little break when we bring Dr. Kelly Victory in here. So let's go out to break, come right back, and we'll get get into the heat. A lot of you have been asking for more information about how to counter the adverse effects of the spike protein from COVID infections and the COVID vaccine. The spike protein is not your friend, let's just say that. So I'm glad we have the wellness company Spike Support Formula as a sponsor, especially since renowned internist and cardiologist, Dr. Peter McCullough, who's also chief scientific officer of the wellness company, is one of its champions. There's some very intriguing research around natokinase, which might be a way to take on the spike protein. Listen to this.
3: So start, if you would, with talking about natokinase, how you got to that and where you see its application. So with the viral infection or the vaccines, the spike protein stays within the body and it's found in the heart, the brain, the vital organs, and it's causing problems. The Japanese have been using this for heart and vascular disease now for 20 years it's safe it is a form of a mild blood thinner
0: that it dissolves the spike protein nearly completely spike support formula is the only product on the market containing nanokinase dandelion root and a host of other antioxidants all showing promise in helping you protect yourself and your family to order this unique specially formulated supplement go to drdrew.com twc that is drdrew.com slash twc use code drew at checkout for 10 percent off today i recently discovered paleo valley they have a line of products that align perfectly with a paleo dietary regimen goodbye to the limited rotation of eggs burgers and the standard fare hello to a wide variety of extraordinary products that are both healthful and delicious paleo valley offers a spectacular range of options including 100 percent grass-fed beef sticks They're packed with nutrients like omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, glutathione, CLA, and bioavailable protein. Plus, keto-friendly, make for a great protein-rich snack on the go. Paleo Valley's tasty beef sticks are not just 100% grass-fed, but also grass-finished, sourced from small domestic farms in the U.S. and flavored with real organic spices. They're also fermented, which means they contain natural probiotics that are great for gut health and they taste amazing. Try them out by heading over to drdrew.com slash paleo valley to get 15% off your first order today. Don't miss out on this opportunity to discover a brand that is perfect for your paleo lifestyle. President Trump recently issued a warning from his Mar-a-Lago home, quote, our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard, which will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. There are three reasons the central banks are dumping the US dollar, inflation, deficit spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, political and economic upheaval dating back to biblical times, gold. And you can own it in a tax shelter retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right, Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k, maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Just visit birchgold.com slash drew for your free info kit. They'll hold your hand through the entire process. Think about this. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. I do not give financial advice, and previous performance is no guarantee of future performance. Visit birchgold.com slash drew to get your free info kit on gold. That is B-I-R-C-H-D-O-L-D dot com slash D-R-E-W. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family, dogs, cats, even horses, in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7
1: You have two years to live. Oh boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years
0: now for dogs mush puppy treats are a fan favorite Rex, you know, oh boy oh, he came right oh there he is they are also made with the coriolis versicolor mushroom which supports their immune system according to hundreds of clinical studies here's kristen Ludlow, national vice president
1: that strain does matter we do have the most potent strain and we also extract it in a proprietary way and that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products
0: mush puppies are made here in the u.s there are no fillers it's not a Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash pet club247 for discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com P-E-T-C-L-U-B 247. Pet club247.
3: There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew.
0: As always on our Wednesday, we welcome Kelly Victory and Kelly, I give you Tom Renz.
3: Thanks, Tom. So happy to have you here. I've been uh, following your work very closely from the beginning of this uh, pandemic debacle. And just when I think you can't come up or expose something any more stunning, lo and behold, uh, you do. You you uh, uncover something else more horrific than the last thing. And our viewers know that I will rend it off. I'm the heat-seeking missile and I will leave nothing uh on the table here, uh, as as Drew knows too. I've been very, very an outspoken critic uh, from the beginning of everything from the fact that they tried to act as if we were all at equivalent risk from this virus, um, that they wildly uh, manipulated the statistics, the virus is real, the statistics are not. And one of the gravest uh, errors in uh, in this entire pandemic response, and again, I don't think it was a mistake, I think it was purposeful, Um, was the therapeutic nihilism that we lived through. The idea that there was nothing to treat this virus and that we should just watch people get sick and then when they turn blue, they should go to the hospital uh, where again, we did little or nothing. I wanna stop
0: you real quick, real quick. I, I, I I just have to say this and I'll let you roll on, but I'm not sure if you're aware, but Annals of Internal Medicine this week was packed with good articles about early treatment. (laughs) and <laughs> budesonide excellent results <laughs> a- annals now yeah. the as as you know as uh, we you and i have been saying all along when the research when literature goes all one direction you know the editorial process or something is adulterated in the research now annals god bless them has stood up as a, a being leaders they are they are criticizing how vaccine observational studies are being done they're saying why don't you Match controls of people who are unvaccinated and follow forward. How hard is that? Does it literally an article on that? The fluvoxamine and budesonide. They also two new monoclonal antibodies looking good against Omicron. They came out with all of it, and they also had the balls to publish the Danish mass study. So they they're clearly showing themselves to be leaders in this. And to your point, Kelly, I I was with you on that. That's the thing I will I shall never get over that our peers let patients go home until they were sick, until they died? You gotta be kidding when there were so many options. Why not steroids? What is so dangerous about giving some some, some corticosteroid? What about inhaled steroid? Why is that anathema? So I'm gonna go away, I'll let you go from there. I just had to say that, I apologize.
3: <laughs> well, well, there's a, yeah, that's what we call a day late and a dollar short. Uh, we, we knew yes, from the beginning yes. that there were multiple readily available, highly effective, inexpensive medications to treat this. That said, Tom, you took it one step, one giant leap forward. You went way beyond exposing therapeutic nihilism, the fact that we failed to treat people with medications that were available and have actually uncovered what you believe to be protocols that were intentionally uh, harming people. And that's where I'd like you to start. Let's talk about that. It is one thing, egregious as it is, to fail to treat someone, doing something actively to promote their demise is a whole nother level of evil. Let's talk about that.
2: Yeah, so when uh, you, know, you and Dr. Drew talked about you know, your, your colleagues and how you felt about this early on, while you guys were talking about that, uh, I was one of you know, a handful of lawyers in the country willing to do this. And I wanna, I wanna open by explaining why this is so important to me. Uh, it was one of the most difficult periods of my life, over and over again, thousands of phone calls from people begging me, my loved one is in the hospital, they won't let me see them, they won't let me try, iver- they tell me that my loved one is going to die in three days, why can't I try ivermectin? They tell me that there's no chance of my loved one recovering, why can't I try hydroxychloroquine? Now, I'm not even, I don't even need to comment on whether these things work. It doesn't matter. Right. The simple right. fact of the matter is, is that if your loved one is going to die and the hospital's telling you they're going to die, why would you deny an opportunity to try something that, you know, someone, I mean, even if it's a one in 10,000 chance that it works, why would you do that? And I do believe we've got legislation that, that makes that a, a, an available option, right? Trump passed some.
3: Well, interestingly, um, let me just interject for one yeah. second and, and talk about how ironic this is. The right to try legislation that was passed by Trump only applies to a drug that isn't FDA approved. Had hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin not been FDA approved, they would have been able to be used under the right to try legislation. It's specifically because they've been FDA approved are known to be entirely safe for use in humans. That we weren't allowed to use them under right to try. Talk about just a perverse mm-hmm. irony. It's that.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. well, and uh, the interesting thing about that is, well, there's some interesting legal arguments that I think go along with that. Um, but I'm going to avoid putting everybody to sleep with that. What I'm going to tell you, though, is <laughs> that, uh, you know, because to my mind, simply listen, you've got two, two ways that that goes on, right? Because one of two things is true. Either it's FDA approved, so why can't we choose to do off label? Or right. uh if you want to say, you know, it's not FDA approved for this, well then the right to try should kick in. Correct. So in either mm-hmm. event, legally, yes. I would argue that you'd have every right to do this. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, what happened to my body, my choice? <laughs> what happened to what happened to that? Where was that? At the end of the day, People had no choice. And I for for months, call after call, please save my loved one, save my this, save my that. You're the only attorney that'll do this. And it was so damaging to me. Over and over, I'd have, hey, you don't have to worry, my loved one's dead now. Hey, you don't have to worry, you couldn't get there mm. fast enough. It was it was mm. one of the most I didn't sign up to be a doctor. I didn't sign up for that. I had no idea that I was ever going to be in a position as an attorney. Where I had to be responsible for so many people dying because I couldn't get to helping them, and you know okay. even when I could, it was a one in ten maybe where we were able to get the hospital to give them a shot or to do something or do anything. I mean it was really a difficult time, so you've got to understand that I was really unhappy about this, and i I kind of internally have vowed to find some way to get justice on this, but as an attorney, my job isn't to I can't. Argue that the law is wrong. I've got to find a way to do what I do within the law. Um, as an advocate, I advocate for changing the law all the time. But as an attorney, I have to work within it. So, what we do, or what I've done, is I've been working and watching and gathering info. And, you know, the one thing that legally we can do, you can't sue for a, per- a person that dies in the hospital from COVID. In almost every state, the hospital is given in just blanket immunity, both federal and state. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult, except for one thing, where it's intentional. Now, I've been working on this for quite some time and I'm tipping my hand to any attorney out there that wants to use this, go for it, brother, because I can only take so many cases. Now, let me ask you, if you're using a known cocktail of drugs with known interactions, it doses that exceed the known danger levels and thresholds. Does that become, does that become uh, intentional? I would argue that it does. Oh, now, absolutely. It's a state-by-state analysis. But uh, so I've been looking on this intentional tort aspect of this, because if it's intentional, it's not that. And what we've found over time and you, and you and Dr. Drew can both testify to this a lot better than I can because you're the doctors, and so I go to the doctors for the expert opinion on this, but I've got a lot of it. Well, when, when we see people using drugs with known interactions, and I'm not talking about remdesivir. Everybody wants me to file the remdesivir case, and I hmm. agree that remdesivir is probably a disaster of a drug, but I'm talking about drugs that have been out for 20 years or longer and that have known interactions. Drugs that are known to suppress your breathing level and thus reduce your oxygen saturation, which would inherently suggest that there's a, they they then would use to justify putting you on a respirator.
3: So we're talking about things like morphine, is that what you're talking about? Sedating people, over-sedating people with, let's call it, with morphine primarily, uh, is the protocols that were were used, Is, is that correct?
2: Morphine and others. I mean, I've got a whole list of drugs that people have talked to me about. And the the whistleblower that we're going to be getting to here that we're talking about uh, is a a Ph.D., Stanford-educated pharmacist, right? So this isn't like Mm -hmm. someone who doesn't know. Uh, She worked uh, in big pharma. I think she did – it was related to clinical trials, went back to patient care because she was into that. I mean, this woman is a top-notch person. She knows her stuff and uh you know her and a bunch of other people have talked to me about the misuse overuse uh you know uh, of drugs in various places and so we knew or suspected this was going on for quite some time then my whistleblower comes forward and she's got these these recordings these recordings of of, of you know conversations she has in the hospital and the one in particular is with a nurse and this nurse is on tape very clearly talking about how, uh, you know, her floor, they were to do things. She viewed it as, as killing. We're killing the patients, she said. We're killing them. And uh, she said, you know, no other floors want to do this. Well, no kidding. I would hope not. Right. But, right. you know, taking steps, they know. And uh, the whistleblower, who's, who has, uh, she has no interest <sighs> in being a, a public figure. She's asked me to speak for her. Um, but she wants the information out cause she finds it to be so wrong. So th- this whistleblower, she says to me, she says, listen, you know, I, I came, I come in one day, I talked to the, I talked to this nurse. How's your, how's your morning going? And he says, terrible. The night nurse didn't do her job. And to what she said is she said, she believes that her, the night nurse's job was to OD the patient on morphine. And now, right. now this guy was grumpy cause he had to go do it um th- these are allegations that are mind-blowingly serious but if we look at it from a from a legislative perspective if we look at it from the lawyer perspective it makes total sense I don't want to I don't want me, to talk me, forever.
3: Was this something that I was thought, that I you found thought. only in one in one isolated hospital or was this a, a pattern of pro, a, a protocol that you saw it, happening as a pattern across hospital systems? So this
2: protocol we are putting together evidence that suggests that this is something that uh that was occurring everywhere. Uh, within this hospital system, right? Okay. And the thing about that is is that uh, this is a very big hospital system. This is the Ascension system, okay? Oh. And uh, if this is occurring everywhere, that is a major, major issue. Now, mm-hmm. here's the question. Um, can I prove that it's happening everywhere yet? And the answer is, I can't prove it, but I can tell you, given the evidence that I've looked at related to this sort of treatment in hospitals around the country, I'm seeing very similar things, and it would be shocking to me if this was a
0: coincidence. You know, uh, let me you Let me though push yeah. back a little bit. Because it, it scares me that we're gonna lose a therapeutic uh, good if we're not careful here if that case that the nurse was describing was a 35 year old with cytokine storm that's outrageous you you take that case to the mat but it's an if it's a 95 year old with multi-system failure and no meaningful existence in, in no way there's gonna be meaningful existence down the road only suffering it's a very different clinical situation one Morphine is a godsend for that individual who is only suffering with no probability of meaningful outcome. The 35-year-old, that's tantamount to murder. (laughs) That's, it's a lot different. So are you able to differentiate amongst these different cases as you look across what you're seeing? Well, and let me be clear. Let me agree with your pushback.
2: Uh, Mm -hmm. I can't argue at all with what you said. Now, the issue, the the only caveat I would make is when is it okay to hasten death? Now in palliative right. care, we look at hasten Not, not death. even
0: hasten, but when, when, is it, when is it okay to do things for comfort that could hasten death is, is the yes. question. And, and, that's and, and hospitals that- should have clear protocols on that. They should have clear protocols and the family should have
2: Mm -hmm. absolute, Mm -hmm. you know, informed consent. Mm -hmm. They should have knowledge. Mm -hmm. They should be part of the decision, not locked out of a room and told they can't talk to people. So I'm with you on that. And I don't want to give morphine a bad name because it's not morphine that was the problem. The problem is, and understand that this clip with this nurse doesn't give you the specifics. And so I'm not calling for the criminal prosecution of this hospital. What I'm calling for is an investigation. I believe that the AG needs to look and see, did this happen? Was there criminal action? Was it a 35-year-old with a long life to give? And she said, the way that she said it in the in the audio was as though this was an ongoing, continuous thing for an entire floor. So that would suggest right. numerous patients. And all of them aren't going to be 95 and half dead. Uh, no, some and of in fact,
3: she, she, she also, excuse me, she also went out of her way to say, these patients weren't suffering drew she th- this nurse pushed oh, back and said why are we why uh, are we being told to give them the morphine they're fine they're not suffering they're oh, not short of breath they're fine and, and we're still supposed uh, to give them the morphine is what she said and again yeah. that is a very damning thing and even in cases of all out frankly you know, hastened, you know, uh, hastened death, What euthanasia, whatever you want to call it, the family has to be very, very much, the family and the patient, very much involved in that decision-making. And that's not what I heard on these clips that Tom is, that, that Tom's discussing at all.
0: And, and, and but there's sort of another wrinkle in here, too. If I were stuck on a ventilator long-term with COVID complications, I'd want propofol. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I didn't hear yeah. about that being used very often either.
2: <clears throat> well, this is the problem, right? So what we did see and what I know we saw, because I had probably a thousand people that I talked to over time, you know, begging me for help saying, you know, the hospital won't let us make decisions. The high, do you know how many instances terrible. I had of. People Boy. calling me and telling me that you know um, my brother, sister, loved one is in the hospital. They put my put the phone on speaker. The doctors didn't know it, and uh, they were in there screaming at you: "You're going to die! You're going to die! You're going to die! If you don't do what we tell you." Jesus. I mean, the horror right. stories. Oh God. And right. and let me awesome. let me bring this around and bring some some additional credibility to this, right? Because you may be saying, and for for your watchers, the listeners, you may be saying, well, this, you know, this Renz guy is a conspiracy theorist. Okay, well, think about this, though. So we have a situation where legally, uh, what we did was we said, listen, if you have a COVID patient, we're going to give you extra money. So if your patient is diagnosed and called a COVID patient, uh, then if your patient goes through certain treatment protocols, remdesivir, ventilator, et cetera, et cetera, each one of those, you're going to get an additional amount of money. Then if your patient dies with COVID, with, not from, well, you get even more money, right? Right. So what we did was we created a financial incentive, not Mm -hmm. if you get better from COVID, you get a bonus. It's if you die from COVID, you get a bonus. And so we create an incentive, a major financial incentive. Then on top of that, we throw in this immunity thing. We say, well, and not only uh, do you get a big incentive, if the patient dies, but we're also going to make it so that uh, you can't be sued for killing them, even if it looks like you yeah. did. You have to actually show willfulness. Willfulness kind of intent. It has to be intentional. So they made the bar so high that it's nearly impossible. And you, you throw in the, the finance, we incentivize murder to my mind.
3: Yes. I I agree with you. And and I think there's definitely something there. I think there's more than just smoke there. And I hope that you continue uh, to dive into this. I've been reporting on the perverse financial incentives from the very, very beginning. And I think it's largely what drove the falsification of the statistics. Let's dovetail this, Tom, into another bombshell that you came out with, which is exposing these, um, for lack of a better term, fake or not qualified, not truly certified doctors and nurses coming largely it sounds like out of a school or schools in florida um can you explain what you found there wow
0: what is this oh my goodness oh boy! yeah so so this is a
2: this is a a, a doj investigation i just found that they were doing it um operation Mm -hmm. nightingale and what they were doing is uh apparently this university was handing out fake degrees and then these, these uh, nurses were, were taking their degrees, getting their, uh, their boards or whatever, and then going to be nurses. Um, here's where this really becomes troubling. And I want to be real clear. I always distinguish between speculation and something I can prove. So we know that this is a legitimate issue because we've got the DOJ paperwork talking about the, you know, doing this, right? But what we don't know is, uh, you know, details beyond that here's what I've been told, and understand that my job has been for the last three years to do everything possible to collect data that I can use in court or elsewhere uh, to fight this COVID thing, and I've done that. So uh, we've been told that there was a major, major, major shortage of doctors and nurses during COVID. We weren't told why so many quit all of a sudden, but when you talk to the doctors and nurses that quit, you find numerous people saying, well, we were treating patients terribly. We were, they were asking me to do things I didn't feel were ethical. They were, they were uh, pushing us to do things that I didn't agree with. So I quit. Well, that, cre- that exacerbated, you know, I mean, we always had a nursing shortage. It, it exacerbated it. So you got to fill that somehow, right? Uh, well, enter this issue. Now, was it so- and I'm not suggesting this was planned or coordinated. But it certainly seemed to, to create an opportunity for something this, like this to happen. Now, if you bring in doctors and nurses that are not appropriately trained and you've got them working in a hospital where you have a situation where the hospital administration and you guys both know hospital administrators are not always doctors or nurses. They're frequently business people, especially now where that business, those business people are pushing the doctors and nurses to maximize profit. Which, in this case, means by ensuring that you've got COVID diagnoses all the way through death. uh, You know, are are you going to really do your due diligence on on these nurses, or are you going to be happy that you've got nurses that may or may not be capable or qualified to question you or question what's happening? Um, You know, that's really the 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 bottom line here. And um, let's just,
3: just to put some put some numbers on this. Thomas, my understanding, we're not talking about a handful, a couple dozen. We're talking about oh, what seventy six hundred, almost eight thousand yeah. mm. people. This is not a, a handful of people, Drew. We're talking, you know, upwards yeah. um, of of 7,000, seven thousand, seventy six hundred uh, nurses, quote unquote, who got fake degrees. And we went to hospitals, in, we don't know how many different states. Uh, at least, uh, you know, half a dozen states, including places like Delaware and Florida and Texas. Um, and we're working as nurses during the height of the pandemic. And I think, as Tom said, when you have these perverse financial incentives on top of it, I, I think you you know we we have the makings of a perfect storm. What do we? What do you know, Tom? Since you know way more about this than I do, with regard to the where these people came from and got their degrees. It was a, a school in Florida, is that, is that not correct? Yeah, I
2: believe there were, I believe there might've been three schools that were doing this, um, but I know there was at least one in Florida. And uh, one of the other thing I've heard reports on, but I haven't been able to verify, are issues with doctors who have credentials from suspect uh, foreign institutions. And I can't say that I know that, you know, it's not confirmed, but this is a credible thing that I'm looking into and trying to find information on. You know, this whole thing, uh, it's just everywhere you look, and I really want to, and I'm interested in, I'm actually interested in your perspectives on this, right? So everywhere I look on COVID, I find new layers of fraud or misleading information or disinformation. Now, we were called disinformation. Mm -hmm. We were called liars. We were called this. We were called that. Um, But I keep finding more and more things, and these things are inarguable, right? So the the myocarditis and things like that, and I don't know if you guys are aware of this. So those were listed as adverse events of special interest in an FDA presentation that was leaked in October, November of 2020, before the drugs were ever out there. Correct. Why weren't they right. in the side effects sheet? I understand Correct. that they tried to distinguish these, distinguish the difference between serious adverse events of special interest and uh, side effects. But at the end of the day, that certainly seems like uh, uh, something that's distinguished without substance,
3: right? And yeah. Yeah. As we there, go were, forward. there were many, there were many side effects that, that were that they knew about before the vaccine program was launched, not only the risk of myocarditis and pericarditis, but also, for example, uh the skeletal anomalies that occurred in fetuses. Uh they yep. knew about uh they knew about a number of these severe side effects ahead of time, including, you know, fertility issues, and and those things were withheld from the public.
0: This is my I, question. I really think I I really think that Panic, motivated reasoning, cognitive dissonance, perverse motivations, or you know, so the all the financial motivations. I think these, I just can't see it any other way. These things held sway over people that aren't are supposed to be even-minded and ability to be objective, and they launched into the panic from the beginning. And if you're in a state of complete emotional dysregulation. You're gonna make some terrible choices which they obviously did I again, I to me the you know I, I'm still living with going into people's offices and hospitals seeing six feet saves lives. I, we have to, I have to live with that knowing right. that that's total bullshit uh, that was invented out of thin air and a panic. Uh, and that everything was done in a panic, everything, and I think well, they I, convinced themselves they were doing the right thing, and that anybody else that wasn't doing the right thing was evil. So they refused to listen to anybody else. It was this bizarre. It's the mass formation again that got going, even in our profession.
3: Well, I, I well, you know, I agree with that, and I want to, I want to get Tom. I want to get your thoughts on this, Tom. But I will put out there my, my side, and then you can sort of, you know, weigh in. Uh, it, it wasn't mistakes my government made it was lies my government told me. Um, there is mm-hmm, a big mm-hmm. difference between making an error and lying. And I want the next thing I wanna get into uh, is, is this issue with the Wuhan Institute and Peter Dazak and EcoHealth and all of that. So while I will grant you Love the public one. was largely uh, bold. Yeah, me too. The, the public was largely in the grip of panic and fear uh, and being driven there by all the propaganda. The people making the decisions were not in that place. I think they knew damn well that they were lying. Uh, So while I will grant you that John Q Public and maybe uh, some small portion of the medical uh, practitioners out there were caught up in the grip of panic and fear, um, the rest of them were out and out lying and there's a big damn difference.
0: I, well, I got to say, I'm I watching think... my peers, though, still wear masks, still wear masks, still insist on six oh, feet. And it's funny. when I, I, I know. And I when I brought it up with my peers three months ago, I said, what, what are you doing with the mask? And one of them said, well, I don't want to get COVID. I don't want COVID. And I was like, all right, whatever. I don't, I'm not going to have the conversation about how masks don't work. A week later, she got COVID, and she still says the same thing about the masks.
2: <laughs> yeah. So okay. So, I mean, I'm trying to be polite. Uh, you know, I'm a lawyer though, so it's, it's hard. Um, you know, the mask thing is one of those things that really just sets me on edge because it's just, honestly, this paper mask that has these giant gaps is somehow going to keep you safe yep. from a virus yep. that's floating around yep. in the air. Literally one of the most mind blowing things I've ever heard, but here's yep. the thing. Or you're
0: going to pull it down and eat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're fine. We're fine like, what, here. what are we doing? I'm
2: going to hold oh, here's my geez. mask, you know, I to just hold my hand up. Um, but here's the thing. When we look at motive, I think we've got to distinguish between some different parties here, right? I think there are a lot of very good doctors, scientists, nurses that I agree with you through uh, would have would have been very much. Uh, pulled into this panic concern and you remember you know a lot of these people they get their their information not everybody's pulling out all the journals and studying the epidemiology and the statistics and determining whether the study was well performed or not they're looking at the conclusion and and uh and that's pretty much it the summary of the study and if they're looking at anything other than the info sheet that they're getting from the hospital administration and or the cdc So a lot of these guys, I think you're right. They didn't know. They were panicked. They believed their partners. They believed their hospital administration. They believed whatever. And by the time they realized how badly they'd been lied to, well, it's kind of hard to look back and realize the destruction you caused. If you're a good person who's committed to saving lives and uh, you, you find out that you were used and misused and misled into taking steps that killed people. So I think there's a lot of good people that made bad mistakes, but that's wearing a little bit thin three years in. Uh, Now, the other thing, though, is you've got the people who are outright liars, right? The government was outright liars. I've got document on document on document on document. I've got more evidence than we could do if we had four hours here showing, you know, I mean, Anthony Fauci had uh, the Project Salas document on his desk while he was telling us that, that uh, you know, it's 99% of the people in the hospital are, di- are unvaxxed. Well, the Project Salus document at that time, which I believe was October, November of 21, um, I, I might have the date wrong, said that uh, 60% of hospitalizations were in fully vaxxed and 70% of new cases were in fully vaxxed. So Anthony Fauci was outright lying. He knew he was lying, but he continued doing it. And, you know, why? Now, the problem that I have and the thing that I'd be curious, you know, to get you guys' opinions on, you know, to me, this is some lawyer wisdom, you know, you you just, once someone's lied to me, I'm suspicious. Once they've lied to me 50 times, I just think they're a liar. I don't trust anything they say. And so <laughs> at this point, when they tell me, there's this benefit or that benefit to the vaccine, or this benefit or that benefit to uh, masks, social distancing. I, think, I don't care what they say. I frankly don't trust anything that they say until I've had the opportunity to review the research myself, run it by my friend-friendly doctor experts that I know are not bought off, and uh, you know, really evaluate it. And I, you know, I I argue and debate with these doctors so they can teach me what I don't know. But frequently, what we're finding out is the policy of not trusting a liar is a good policy.
3: Yeah, no kidding. And I will tell you, you you call it li- lawyer wisdom, but I will call it good common sense. That's exactly right. And one of the things that causes me great concern about exactly what you're saying, Tom, and I've said this from the beginning, is that God help us when we need the public to pay heed to us at public. Public health's time because there will be oh. a next time. There will yeah. be a next crisis, and we have undermined uh, the confidence of the of the public in public health and in our yeah. our institutions, um, it, such that I think people will not listen at all. We have driven vaccine hesitancy to an all time high. We may never recover from that. Uh, there are yeah. people who I know who won't go to the doctor at all, uh, who don't listen to anything that physicians say. Any longer yeah. because they have, they, they know that they've been duped. Um, I. I, I I, before we run out of time, I do want to give you a chance to talk about my my favorite, uh, you know, Fauci's evil sidekick, uh, Peter dayzak and um, and I've been reporting on this again. It was one of the things that got me banned from Twitter and YouTube very very early on. Was uh, talking about the connection between uh, Anthony Fauci and Eco Health Alliance and how they used that sham uh, to funnel U.S. taxpayer dollars over to the lab in Wuhan. Um, so, talk about that. I know that you actually have a case uh, that's been filed yeah. against Peter Kasek. So, um, take it, take it from there.
2: Yeah, the first of many. Uh, you know, the nice thing about that case is is that anyone who has has COVID is a potential client in that. So, if they don't like the way this is done, we can go. We can uh, redraw it and file it again, and keep going until we get it to get this done. Because at the end of the day, here's what we know at this point, and that I feel very confident saying conclusively. Covid was created in a lab. It was created with intent. It was these guys were were doing whatever they were doing. They were doing it for grant money for whatever. I don't care what they were doing. From the lawyer's perspective, this works. Uh, the way that you want to look at this is if I uh, if I build a dynamite factory in downtown New York City, right in Manhattan, and uh, you know I'm doing my thing and I take every precaution in the world to make sure that it's the safest dynamite factory that it could be, but that dynamite factory still blows up, that's what's called an abnormally dangerous activity. So I'm on the hook for that. Working with coronavirus is legally considered an abnormally dangerous activity, so you're on the hook. Uh, Now, when you throw on top of that the fact that these guys didn't have the proper safety protocols. They weren't checking on safety. They weren't doing anything related to safety. Uh, I mean, you have an absolute recipe for disaster. And I think one of the things that we really also all, really all need to be asking about in addition to that, is we're talking about very advanced, complex bioengineering techniques, right? To, To modify a virus or to perform this gain of function work on a virus. That's complicated. Like you can't just do that, yeah, you know, your home lab. So, why, why would we do this gain of function work in a lab that's that's everybody knows is tied in with the CCP that we know is part of the CCP bioweapons development program? And uh, you know wh- when the CCP has been talking for decades on record about the possibility of using bioweapons against the United States, why would you do that? And I, do you think that we did that without approval from some government agencies? Do you think that the technology that was transferred from from people like Ralph Barrick and and Peter Daszak to to China, the technology necessary to debil- build advanced viruses? Do you think that that was done without government approval? Do you think that no one knew that they were doing that? I think that's a bit absurd to suggest that. And I'm very curious as to why, uh, you know, as we're doing these uh, these committees and investigations in Washington, that they're not getting into that question and who approved it, and what entities were involved, yeah, sure. and whose job it was to well, know. Because there's no, well, there's, because, yeah, there's, no
3: it, there's no question. It, I, I don't agree with right, much Kelly. that that. I, I don't agree with much that Barack Obama did, uh, but one of the things he did uh, under his uh, watch was put a ban on gain-of-function research back in 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. And so there's no question that this gain-of-function research was already taking place in the United States. But Anthony Fauci, um, with the uh, all of his hubris uh, that he uh, embodies, simply said, well, the heck with that. If we can't do it here in the United States, we'll simply transfer it over to the... Wuhan uh, virology lab, and we'll you know sort yes. of push it through this Shell Corporation Eco Health Alliance, so that yep. we kind of sh- you know shield it from the public's eye. But I'm with you, Tom. I I can't see how uh, that was was not obvious to multiple people in the I, federal government. I have government. one I possible
0: one possible explanation. One, because I, I always try to understand. You know, Kelly, I try to understand the other side of the table. And the only thing I can imagine that it was could be an could be i'm not saying it is the only possible thing that could have made this okay was an elaborate counter espionage operation In other words, that this was some sort of espionage to to undermine what they were doing at Wuhan with somehow. It's the only possible explanation that I could live with. Also, one other thing about Barack Obama, let's not forget that he did not do lockdowns with H1N1. And I heard Michelle Obama talking recently, and she said, well, we had the advantage during the pandemic of living with a president that made a decision and who went through a pandemic. And I thought, We need to hear from him. He should be critical. He should come out and criticize what happened in this pandemic versus how he managed the one before. Well,
2: uh, Well, I'll tell you what, Uh, at the risk of of having you banned from everything, I'll avoid saying some things, but (laughs) we have substantial evidence, substantial evidence uh, that that counter espionage a uh, theory might have a little more weight to it than what people would like to think. And here's the thing Ooh, though. Interesting. Interesting. Here's the thing though. At the end of the day, did we really win on that one given how many people no. are now dead from COVID and all this, no. all the trouble, all the shutdown. Uh, and if that is the case and I'm just speculating here, Uh, you like how I do Mm. that. Um, but I'm just speculating here. You know, if that was the case, I would think that those guys that were behind that would do anything that they could to shift blame and dodge and make sure that was covered up because we wouldn't want any government agencies that have three letters to be blamed, uh, for a, an espionage, uh, program that went bad and resulted in, you know, millions of people, global catastrophe, uh, strife, all these things, especially when it's one so dumb is to provide advanced Mm. biotech to a a country that says we want to use bioweapons against you. I mean, it just seems that just plainly stupid to me.
3: Right, Mm. doing gain-of-function research with your greatest geopolitical foe, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Um, But we have email traffic, if I'm uh, not mistaken, between Peter Daszak and Fauci, for example, talking specifically about it and saying, you know, we need to uh, squash all of this talk about the Wuhan lab. I mean we have the proverbial yeah. smoking guns, right?
2: Many of them. Many of them. I mean, you know, I don't know, I don't know that there's much more that I could do to have an open-shut case on this. It's just yeah. figuring out how the court, court wants to hear it and then recognizing that the court is going to be hit with just massive political pressure. I mean, big pharma loves gain of function work. I mean, and and here's the thing. Gain of function work you've got to understand uh, it's very controversial. And, you know, I'm personally completely against it. But the thing about yeah. this is, okay. is uh, and I'd like to fill your listeners in on this because there's a lot of this nonsense out there. And you'll hear a lot of people talk about this and they'll use the word bioweapon. And I want to explain why, the, why you'll hear that from time to time. So, gain of function research is frequently categorized as what's called dual purpose research. And dual purpose research means that it's something that can be used for good or for bad, right? So if I'm, if I'm building a more dangerous disease to study it, to create a cure for that more dangerous disease, then presumably that's for good, right? Uh, but if I'm building a more dangerous disease, it's still a more dangerous disease. And so that could potentially be called under the, legal, uh, the rules of law, a bioweapon. So when you hear people on one side of the debate or the other talking about it that way, um, you know, it's, it, it, was COVID meant to be a bioweapon? I don't have any evidence to prove that, um, but was it a bad decision? Oh yeah, it was a bad decision.
0: Yeah. And I can to say yeah. on the on the China, we have the we CCP side, we do have some people that are st- stepping up and saying at least they were developing it as a bioweapon. I do want to interrupt yep. for a second to tr- get an attempt to get some calls in here. Shivani, you're there, I've got you up. Uh, do you have a question or a comment?
4: Yes, uh, hey, hey Drew, uh, uh, thank you for calling on me. Uh, two comments, one is the question asked about um, the AEs of special interest. I just want to point out as someone who's worked in drug development ae of special interest doesn't necessarily mean that it is associated with the drug it doesn't imply causality in fact the pharmaceutical company will do everything they can to list that as an ae of special interest and then try to dissuade the regulators from viewing it as associated what goes against what your guest said, uh, or not against, but what supports what your guest said is that in 2021, in the original NDA application, the FDA then pointed out they say, based on the myocarditis myocarditis signal, they asked the uh, I think it was Pfizer to conduct more post marketing studies. So I, I think that isn't kind isn't of this
0: it's, exactly what happened with Vioxx? Didn't they learn their lesson? The same yes, company. It's exactly, exactly
4: what happened with Vioxx. Exactly what happened. And, wow. And so I, I, so I, I think when you look at that AE of special interest, you, you can argue that wasn't necessarily something that the FDA, FDA was worried about initially. But then they were when they actually, when you look at that, I think August or or September 2021 document, hmm. they asked the they asked the pharmaceutical manufacturer to do to do three post marketing studies, none of which have come to light. So that's really fascinating, and nobody nobody seems to be interested in asking where the hell are those studies? Okay, yep. all right. Your other point. Uh, and, and, and my other point is, you know, uh, last year, I, it, kind of speaking to your guest's point about what the hospitals are doing and how they're run by administrators with no medical background, I suffered COVID in June of 2020, June of 2022, I think, and I received a letter from my hospital saying, uh, hey, it's time for your booster, <laughs> and boosters are mandatory, and I said, oh, um, I just had COVID, here's my test result, and they said... Oh, that's very good. You should get a booster in, you have four weeks to get a booster. And I said, says who? I'm just recovering from an infection. They said, oh, says we, that's hospital policy. And I said, no, no, I I refuse to. There's absolutely no evidence for getting a booster when, when I'm recovering from infection. And they said, why don't you speak to infection control? True story. And I said, I don't need to speak to infection control. I am infectious disease. And they said, oh, it doesn't matter. That's our policy. And at that point, I was like, oh, my God, this is the stupidest thing I've seen. And I was this close to saying, I will not work here. There's no re- There's nothing scientific about what is happening. Yep. Yep. And we, we devolved into a bureaucratic state. Yeah. on every level. It's, it's yeah. all turtles down. And, yeah. and this is, I think, a lot of physicians were so turned off because it's like, you can't tell, I'm, I'm a doctor and you're telling me I need a vaccine when I'm post-convalescent uh, uh, with, with the infection. That makes zero sense. Well,
0: and and it's one thing if you were a PDE or if you were a endocrine, or well, whatever, you were a, a foot surgeon or something, but you're an infectious disease internist, and you're the one that should be determining policy and best care practices for your patients. And your family <laughs> (laughs) yourself
4: so So be it and and so so i have to get an exception letter this is this the stupidity is never ending i have to get an exception letter from one of my colleagues and he's like well uh, (laughs) we agree he doesn't need to and then and then they make me sign a letter saying that if i don't get a booster in whatever time in six months then i will have to subject myself to weekly testing which is which is another level of stupidity in unto itself oh boy And and, and at that point, I was like, you know what, if they decide to fire me for not getting a booster... So be it, because at that point, I was like, I am done with putting up with bullshit. You well, know, there's no yeah. reason for anybody to put themselves up. I,
0: I, I stand up, my <laughs> friend. It's time. It's time not to be sheep. Yep. I'm putting you back in the audience speaking of sheep. Uh, thank you for that call, sir. I appreciate it. it. It is time for everyone to stand up. And I, I do feel one of the reasons I was interested in talking to Tom is I feel like in addition to not just being so passively compliant, that must stop. Uh, people's lives were ruined by that. I feel like the other thing is we've got to sort this stuff out in the courts, like aggressively.
3: Yeah. Well, I guess that's that was my last question I want to, as the clock winds down here, Tom, that I would like to end on is, you know, given the amount of time you've spent of Congress, the number of people you've spoken to. Where do you see this going in the courts? You know, we have a few people who have been outspoken, whether it's a Ron Paul or excuse me, Ron Johnson, Rand Paul, a few people, but it is a handful. Uh, The rest of Congress uh, seems to have their heads in the sand uh, and is supporting this. They they aren't uh, informed themselves, uh, let alone they aren't fighting it. Where do you see this going? What are our chances of fighting this out successfully in the courts?
2: You want the political correct answer or the real answer? I want the real um, answer. I want an answer, your answer. Well, I'm going to just give you my answer. That's all I give. Um, So the courts will eventually work. It's going to take more time. Uh, When I first brought, when I brought my first case, I had hundreds, I believe thousands of citations, all scientific peer-reviewed things. I mean, everything you can imagine. And they told me the case wasn't plausible. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. It was dead right. But I want to draw a parallel for y'all. I want, and I think this will help you guys understand the legal perspective, right? Do you guys remember, and I don't care where anybody stands on the issue, I'm not trying to be political about this, but do you remember gay marriage when it first started popping up in the courts? Mm-hmm. 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 So when this first started popping up in the courts, every gay marriage case got thrown out immediately. They said, 10th Amendment, none of our business, get out and that's how the federal courts dealt with it. And this happened for a very long time, and so many cases got thrown out, just absolutely ignored. And you gotta understand the nature of the courts. The courts are very slow to shift. It's, it's, it's the way that they're built, right? Um, now, there's some special issues that have made it even slower with COVID, such as, you know, how many judges have a daughter or a son or a brother or a sister that's a doctor? Who's telling them, no, 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 this is all real. you got to follow CDC. So we've had to really work hard to wake up the doctors and shift the culture. And much like the gay marriage thing, along with the cases that they filed, they also had a huge, huge, huge push publicly. Remember Will and Grace, query for the straight Mm -hmm. guy. All the lovable, affable gay characters who who we saw and we, we appreciated their shows and what have you that were brought to the public to get people uh, to, to see this in a different light. All of this happened. And uh, it, in the same way, we're going through the same process with the COVID litigation. Okay, We had to get to where there was credibility. We had to keep bringing this to the courts. We had to do it in different ways, figure out what way the courts wanted to hear it. And judges don't like to be told that they're biased or affected by outside sources. But right. I'm just going right. to tell you, I've got several hundred pages of documents sent to me from in, p- sources inside the federal court system showing me the, the, I'm sorry, but frankly, disinformation that was sent to federal judges around right. the country during COVID. You know, they were told all the same lies we were, but they were told it directly by the CDC, which, you know, federal judges work in the federal system. So they're likely to take, you know, view that as a colleague or, you know, someone giving them good advice. Now, the CDC, it turns out, has frequently been the source of most of the lies, and I've caught them in that. But when you've got one, you know, random nobody attorney from Ohio going into court and telling, hey, all your colleagues at the CDC are liars. Um, here's the citations. I can prove it, but they're all liars. Versus the the billions of dollars, the credibility of you know the Harvard doctors and the Yale doctors and the the institutions and the CDC and this and that and other. Uh, it takes time to demonstrate. No, we were right. We were right, and so we keep pushing that. But I'm going to tell you the bigger problem. You mentioned you know Rand Paul and Ron Johnson and a few of the good guys. The ha- the number of good guys is very slim. And you've got to understand that I approach my position in this a little bit differently than most lawyers. When, when Make Americans Free Again and, and some of these other groups said, hey, can you help us free our country? What I did was I looked at this and I said, okay, so you're asking me to create change because some of what we have going on here is actual law. And it's not illegal. It's not invalid. It's not unconstitutional. Uh, It's just bad law and we can have bad law, but if you want to get rid of bad law that is constitutional, that's politics, right? So what we did was we we hit this from multiple directions. We pushed to try and educate the public. We filed lawsuits, but we've also pushed to educate people that we're going to push this politically. That has been the most difficult thing because at the end of the day, ethics are everything to me. I'm not going to buy off a politician. I couldn't if I wanted to. I don't have that much money. So, what we, I mean, we raise money to just to keep our lights on. So, we're we're not in a position to buy any politicians, but Big Pharma. We've we've printed trillions of dollars to give to the pharmaceutical companies. And that money then gets filtered back in the form of lobbying money. Right? So, Pharma can spend a billion dollars on lobbying because if they're going to make 100 billion off of that billion dollars they end up ahead. And so what's mm-hmm. happened is is we've had numerous instances where house reps, senators, state and federal have said to me, listen Renz, we know you're right, we know this, but pharma has outright told us if we oppose you, we will not get elected again. They'll spend, they don't care Jeez. what they have to spend. And so you can take me for my word at that or not. I don't care whether anybody believes me or not because, I, you know, I'm not going to ever burn my sources on that. But we've heard this from multiple t- people in multiple places on the state and federal level. And so at the end of the day, you've got to understand, you, uh, you know, Dr. Drew, you mentioned at the beginning the revolving door between pharma and, uh, you know, the the regulation, the regulators. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely true. And uh, the politicians are aware, and we've now given pharma so much money that we've made them so much more powerful politically that it's really a bad situation for we the people yeah. because now we're asking we the people, uh, you know, these politicians to stand for we the people against basically a Goliath. And, you know, politicians aren't known for the, you know being the, the most uh, principled.
3: Oh no, well, we, we have. We to have leave uh, it, uh, we, yeah, we, have to we'll, leave we'll leave it, there, it there. there. Kelly,
0: finish your thought.
4: Yeah, as you
3: say, we have we have Bobby Kennedy uh, joining us again on Monday, and I'll tell you, of all people, he has been. Uh, Big pharma is in his crosshairs, uh, and I am right there with him. So yeah, uh, I'll that, tell you, that, that is, Tom, that thank is, you. That guy. yeah, he's a yeah, great guy. Exactly, and, what I was going to say. Uh, is, we're going to talk about that, Tom, uh, Tom. You are a godsend, and I don't say that 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 lightly. Um I, I what you are doing is so meaningful to this um to this campaign. It's not just about COVID. That's been uh the focus, but you really are exposing a level of corruption that I think Americans need to see. We need to expose it uh and we need to fight this one through to the end. So fellow Ohioan to another, thank you for uh for joining us. I really, really appreciate you doing this. Yes.
0: Yes. That's uh, a great Caleb, you great. quick Okay. Yeah, yes a I, have a, I have a really quick question I, before
4: we wrap up since we have an attorney on on yeah. screen who's doing this stuff so is there any merit at all to a group of people pursuing a class action false advertising lawsuit against these pharmaceutical companies that are advertising safe and effective but didn't actually do that
0: uh, <laughs> no, no, jump, right up, up. that's for next conversation we'll see he'll update us on that next time nice. but, next but I, I, we I'd might actually, be looking at some of that <laughs> Good. Okay. I, Good. And I I love leaving this right here because Kelly and I are going to pick it up with RFK Jr on Monday. Yeah. And uh, he yeah. is saying some very provocative things that you know, obviously as you know I don't agree with everything he says, but I love that he is mixing it up with some of the things he's saying right in this zone. So Tom, you've left us in the perfect spot. Uh, We will look to you in the future for some updates and maybe even some assistance in some of these things we're fighting. Uh, But we thank you for being here today. And then, Kelly, we'll see you on Monday at 3 o'clock, where we'll pick it up with RFK Jr., 3 o'clock Pacific time. And tomorrow, I'll be with Jordan Schachtel, 3 o'clock again, Pacific. See you all then. Thanks, Tom. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me. Call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.